people. Well, these 12, 12 tribes, they make up what we would say the people of God. But over time, much like you and I, they did not get along very well. So enter in this moment of history when they are divided. There is a southern kingdom and there is a northern kingdom. The south and the north is an age-old controversy for years. You've got the southern kingdom and you've got the northern kingdom. This is often referred to as the divided kingdom. Amos is from Tekoya, which is located in the southern kingdom called Judah. He travels north to Bethel, which we're going to see in a couple weeks from now. And we're going to learn about that in, uh, in the book a little bit later. So he travels from the southern kingdom of Judah to the northern kingdom of Israel to offer up a few words. <laughs> a few powerful words. But notice the moment of history. They are not favorable towards one another. So Amos is actually walking into a, um, a hostile environment to deliver not just his words, but the Lord's words. As verse 2 makes really plain, we'll look at in a moment who is actually speaking. All we know is that he, Amos, was with some shepherds because presumably that's his trade. That's what he has given himself to. He's in his hometown, and then he is asked and then given a task to go to the north to deliver God's word to Israel, a divided kingdom who do not get alone. Amos is a simple man, a simple man called to a massive task. The southern boy goes in faithfulness to God and preaches to the northern brothers and sisters. This is no small task for the simple man, Amos. But what we need to understand is what is up with this divided kingdom stuff? Why is it necessary for Amos to do this? Well, if you really want to read up on it and get more details, you should look at 1 Kings 12, actually 11 and 12. They tell us how they became a divided kingdom. Now, if I were to take any guesses from you, I wonder what you would say. Perhaps you would say, hmm, if I think about things that could divide people, well, maybe greed, selfishness, arrogance, and to all, I would say, yep, sounds about right. Really, honestly, insert whatever prideful attitude that causes a person to reject God, and it was at play when the kingdoms divide. Matter of fact, if you want to get into the nitty-gritty, when Solomon kicks the bucket, there was a revolt that actually had started earlier because of Solomon's disobedience. This is the backdrop of where Amos is entering into, a divided kingdom on the hills of Solomon's death. But it all begun or began in the last years of his reign. When he finally dies, the 12 tribes of Israel divide into a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah. The northern kingdom consists of 10 tribes. 
The southern kingdom are just two. Judah, as its namesake. Judah, we know, as we saw in Genesis. And if you don't know this, you can go back to our series of Genesis and you can see this. Judah as the carrier of the promised Messiah, right? There's a protection. There is a, a, a separation occurring here. And so in the southern kingdom, you get Judah and you get Benjamin. That's the two tribes that make up Judah. It's actually Jeroboam the first, not the one we're dealing with, that leads this charge to separate from Jerusalem, to separate from Judah, and Jeroboam the first becomes the first king of Israel. Rehoboam is the first king of Judah. Like I said, you can read all about this, 1 Kings 11 and 12. It'll help you gain some insight of why is this even necessary for Amos to do this. These are, these are God's people who had watched him move in significant ways. Fast forward many generations, and Amos has to go to the northern kingdom to deal with some stuff. In essence, what we need to understand as a backdrop of this prophetic word headed out is this. In essence, because of Solomon's sin, God decides to divide the tribes and in, in doing that to preserve Judah. This is King David's tribe. It's the one where the Messiah would come from. And he rips the rest of the tribes away from Solomon's descendants. Oh, you think you know what to do, Solomon? Oh, you think you've got it all figured out? Well, here's what I'm going to do when you pass. I'm going to rip all the kingdoms away from your descendants. Preserve Judah because God remains faithful. This is the backdrop. So Amos preaches when Judah, the southern kingdom, is on their ninth king. And Israel, the northern kingdom, is on their twelfth king. Now, for various reasons, some live longer than others, but that's the setting. Not only do we learn and see if you're unfamiliar what's up with these two different kingdoms, why do they have kings? Well, here's why. Pride, sin, selfishness. Well, we learn not only is he preaching to a divided kingdom, but we also learn who the kings are at the time. Judah's king is Uzziah. Jared mentioned him last week in his message. Pastor Jared reminded us that he was a good king, a really good king. A matter of fact, the scripture of Uzziah is, he did right. If you're in Tennessee, you say, he did good. He was a faithful king. That's Judah. Now, Israel's king is Jeroboam II. He's well known for being evil. <laughs> He's well known for being idolatrous. He's well known for unrighteousness. What we also know about Jeroboam the second is that through his evil reign, believe it or not, Israel does enjoy its most prosperous time in history. If you look up a description of him, it'll say two things. Evil, idolatrous, unrighteous, below, leads Israel to its most splendid time prosperous time as a nation. He raises them to their greatest 
splendor, at least on the surface, seems to be that all is well in the northern kingdom. Nah, 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 southern kingdom. Look at our prestige. Not that the southern kingdom is left out of this prophecy. We'll get there. But if you read history books, it's going to seemingly look like that this is the most prosperous, splendorous time of, of Israel. They're powerful. There is prestige. You see, on the surface, someone look into their life and they'll think, wow, they were the ones who got this right, apparently. They look wonderful. L look at Israel. There is money. There's power. There's prestige. What a glorious time of history for these people. Not so much. Not so much. Remember what I said, the use of prophecy? Let me just remind you, and we alluded to this a moment, but a part of what prophecy does is it presents life from God's view. It presents life with such a clarity to say, oh, by the way, you're wrong. This is what is true. And what we get in this little book is we get God's view on their current seemingly prosperous time. Oh, we will leave and understand that, wait a second, their prosperity is not vindicative of their righteousness, of their faithfulness. Just in those first couple of words, this is what you and I are to feel. Placing the prophecy in a moment of history and setting us up to hear what God thinks about this divided kingdom. What God thinks about this prosperous, wonderful, seemingly wonderful place. So that's the context. And do you notice the very last little detail we get in chapter 1? Kind of a little throw in. The last little detail we get in verse 1 is that Amos goes two years before the earthquake. Now, you may be wondering, well, that's an odd detail, but I think it's easy for us to see to say, oh, it's just placing this person in a time of history. And it certainly is doing that, but it's also serving in another way. It's, it's almost like a, a placeholder when you read that to indicate that the destruction that is to come is not due to anything but the Lord's doing. Amos didn't go afterwards. Oh, by the way, by the way. No, he goes before. And begins to predict and say, and sure enough, and it's hard historically to actually pinpoint when that happened, but history sh does show. And most would see that as a moment of, oh, no, we should wake up. And so here we have just this tiny little detail screaming, oh, by the way, the Lord's words are trustworthy. Destruction comes. God's discipline comes by his doing. So that's the setting. Those are a couple of our characters. Now, verse 2. And even, you can probably see in your Bibles, it's structured a little bit different, right? You see kind of normal text, and all of a sudden you get this little, like, a line here, a line move there. Now we're getting into the good stuff. We're getting into some clarity of what is happening here. And here we are introduced to our great and glorious Lord. 
And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Our final detail that we get in verse 2 about this setting is so clear. What we are introduced to is we're introduced to the one who is behind all of Amos's words. Yeah, the book starts with the words of Amos, but he quickly wants to say, oh, no, no, no. These are the words of the Lord. It is the Lord. He's the author of Amos's message. These words are not just from Amos, the simple man, but it is the Lord who roars and utters these words. Here we see our first beautiful display of a grammatical structure that unpacks the Lord's voice with the left and a right speaker effect. The first line says he roars, and the second says he utters. This gives us a sense of the power and depth of God's voice. One descriptor just won't do. Because when the Lord speaks and he opens his mouth, it is powerful. It is has a depth to it. His speech is like no other. The Lord roars, and in the same place, holder in the second line, in comparison to roar, he utters. One of those words communicates loudness, fierceness. A roar indicates power, but the Lord also utters, we could say, growls. And isn't a growl just as terrifying? The the slow growl of a lion fills the one who listens with deep fear because we know in that small growl is a wealth of power. We know the growl can turn thunderous in a moment's notice. You see, this phrase, utter his voice, can also indicate thunder as well. Because when the Lord growls and when he roars, thunderous cracks of sound fill the air. All around his voice comes rumbles of power from one corner to the next. The Lord can and will be heard from one corner of the world to the other. His voice rumbles with power. It leaves little doubt to the hearer that he can and will indeed do what he says. Like the lion at the zoo, who can be heard from one corner to the next, the Lord can and will be heard from one corner of the world to the other. There is no place to hide from the thunderous collapse of God's declaration. Hide, if you will, but the hot breath of his growl will reach your face. The teeth-shaking claps of thunder will pound your ears when the Lord speaks. Oh, that we would be a people that would listen to the voice of the Lord. 
Hear the reading of Psalms again that we read earlier. The voice of the Lord is over the water. The glory, uh, the God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and siren like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire the voice of the lord shakes the wilderness the lord shakes the wilderness of kadesh the voice of the lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare what a contrast all in his temple cry glory no kidding What else do you cry when the Lord speaks? We hope that you cry glory. The book of Amos is not just some words from a simple man, but words from the glorious Lord who roars his truth, who growls his declarations. But will you notice this morning from where his voice comes. Here we get our left and right speaker again. In one place he roars from Zion, in the other place he utters his voice from Jerusalem. Here we get a clear picture of just where the Lord speaks from. It tells those who are listening that the Lord speaks from his designated place. What you need to know here and why this is significant is because the northern kingdom had been neglecting the Lord's prescript way of interacting with him. They, through their own preservation in their own eyes, they had created places of worship other than Jerusalem. Why is that a big deal? Because in essence, what they are doing is seeking faithfulness to God on their own terms. You don't know. We do. They are seeking truth in their own ways, not God's ways. So where does the Lord roar from? He roars from the place that they should should have always been seeking him. Their rebellion, it knows no ends. They even neglected to seek the Lord the way that he established. And in doing so, they actually lost truth. They actually lost it. And we'll see the effects of that as we read this book. The Lord had not made his truth hard to find. (laughs) They were aware. They knew where to seek it, but in rebellion refused. Jerusalem housed the right place of worship. And this right place of worship where truth was at would direct his people towards faithfulness. And perhaps never needing to divide anyway. So to neglect it, where God have given instructions, to neglect what the Lord has said was to neglect life itself. To neglect it was to place oneself as the highest authority. It actually is a very selfish declaration of this. We know better. And trust our assessment more. Don't go to Jerusalem. Stay up here in Bethel. 
and we'll find truth here. That's not what the Lord had said. So the Lord brings his thunderous claps of truth from the place where it can be found. Though they do not seek it, they will hear it. Though they do not seek it, they will hear it. Brothers and sisters, if you didn't come here to really seek what the Lord would have for you or, or, or listen to him, I pray that you would hear it this morning. There's too much at stake. Who are we to think we've got it all figured out? Who are we to think that we can live outside of what God has given us? And here we will discover a people so far removed and doing horrible things. Horrible things. And here we get a hint of why. The Lord says, you won't come here to seek it. Well, let me roar from this place so that you can hear it. We get a quick little descriptor. and We're going to see much more of the results when the Lord roars. Here we understand pretty quickly and easily in this second verse that the devastation, it, though it's simply communicated here, very simple, we understand that it's going to be widespread. Did you catch the left and right speaker here, right? The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Here we get a very simple descriptor. We're going to get many details along the way, but for now, here's our hint towards the massive drought and widespread destruction that is to come. So much so that it's going to reach the lush hillsides of Mount Carmel. All the way from the valley where the shepherds are. All the way to the highest point that they could fathom. Including two bookends for them to see everything. The shepherds will be in so much want of green grass for their animals to live, they will mourn. The top of, uh, of Mount Carmel, that is one of the luscious places, will be dry. No one will be untouched when the voice of the Lord speaks. What's interesting about this tiny little detail, and I would think strategic, is to mention Carmel. Do we remember what happens at Mount Carmel? Do we remember what Mount Carmel represents? Well, just to remind you, it is a place God has shown his power. How did he show his power? He showed it over the foreign god of Baal, remember? How did he do that? With great fire. Remember that scene that burnt up the altar of Elijah? Remember, he's like, go get a bucket, pour it on the altar. He gets one. No, no, go get another one. He gets another no, no, it's not wet enough. Go get another. And over and over in this lush landscape, he brings water, saturates it to where no one's going to be able to light this altar. What does the Lord do? Oh, he lights it. 
Oh, he lights it in a grand display of his power. And in a turn of showing his power, he declares his mercy. Oh, he is powerful, but he is also gracious. But what occurred on that mountain, that defeat, what did it declare? That the Lord indeed is the one true God. He now speaks and he will wither again Mount Carmel. The Lord indeed is the one true God. And here's the hard part. Who must be listened to? I don't know how any other way to put it. But this morning, and what these two verses are doing and setting the stage for us and them, is the Lord has spoken and we must listen. I mean, if I could get super creative with it, I would have, but I just feel like that's the point. He, he roars, the emphasis is on him and, and what he has spoken and, and what he has told us. The emphasis is there because of his power, because of his trustworthiness, and so therefore necessitates that we must listen. The Lord has spoken. Perhaps even in these few moments together, the roar of the Lord, the thunder clap of his truth has slapped your eardrums in a way that has caused you to go, oh, I guess I'm not at liberty to do whatever I want with God's word. Now I have, unfortunately, a squeaky high-pitched voice, but I wish I had a really deep, thunderous one. But even in that limitation, we all know, when the Lord speaks, thunder claps. And now, we have to understand this morning. It doesn't take me long in pastoring. It doesn't take me long in being a Christian at the age of 13. That great pastor, I'm glad you said that, that the Lord has spoken and we must listen, but we understand this is difficult, isn't it? Listening to God is really difficult. But can I just be plain and clear this morning, much like Amos I don't think that difficulty, I don't think the difficulty for them listening to Amos, I don't think it really resides in doubt, wondering if Amos got the words right. Well, Amos, could you go back and consult the Lord and come back with a a, a thorough discourse to see whether or not that's exactly what the Lord told you to say? I honestly do not think in listening to the Lord is not ultimately, did, did the words of Amos that he spoke, did they get copied correctly? Now, that's a good thing to think about, but at the end of the day, to listen to the Lord, I don't think it's ultimately about that. At the end of the day, it's not whether the transmission of God's word over generations has been correct, though that's a great question, and a lot to talk about in that. No, really, I believe at the heart of heeding what God says, what he utters is trust. What we're going to see throughout this book is that these people, they were not unaware of what the Lord wanted. It was clear. 
There was no debate whether or not this was copied correctly or this was right or if that's really. No, no. They knew what the Lord wanted. Remember the practice of every king? What were they supposed to do? Grab God's word, grab the, uh, the, the books that they had, and copy every one of them. To ensure what? That it was clear what the Lord had said. They are not unaware. He said it plainly. They looked at it all the time. And what he says throughout this book, he's actually said so many times before. So it couldn't have been that that they were unaware. It, It couldn't have been that they are so intellectually superior now that they think perhaps, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's not what he meant. At the end of the day, they lacked trust. That God had their best interests in mind. I'll admit, listening to God is difficult for us. But you know why it's difficult? Because we like our opinions better. That's why it's hard. I, I sound better. I crafted this sentence together. I said it really well. But I read this and I go, huh? But this person said it so much better. And I get it, it's hard because we often trust our feelings more than his words. The number one conversation we have in our house so often is, hey, your your feelings aren't always right. They aren't always right. What will happen to us over this time in Amos is us wrestling with trust. And isn't this what Proverbs 3, 5 just told us so clearly? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not do what? Well, that's a good word, isn't it? And this is in the end. For me to say a simple thing, the Lord has spoken and we must listen. I know what is wrestling in your brain, your heart, and your mind. But at the end of the day, what it boils down to is trust. There are moments in our life that we'll have to say, my understanding is limited, and so I'm going to go here with trust. And this morning, if you struggle with that, let me just double-dog dare you. Try it out. Trust the Lord above your own understanding. Let me pastorally push you, much like the Lord does here in this book, is to not lean on our own understanding, but trust the Lord. The second thing I think we need to hear this morning to understand and receive this well is what he says is good for us. This is a realization that we need to come to within our lives. God is not a fun killer, but he is someone who wants us to flourish, to use a buzzword of the day, to live life to The fullest, if you will. You see, the thief comes to steal and destroy. But God comes to give life abundantly. Some of you know that verse, huh? But you see, the life he gives is eternal. You see, it's not concerned with momentary pleasures that don't sustain us over long periods of time. Riches, fame, comfort, acceptance by all. If I were to be honest, it was a hard one for me. All of that in the end is 
not good for us. It is ruinous to our life. God our Father has the words of life. Words that will transcend the here and now. And when we listen to them, it is good for us. He has our best interests in mind. And in the world where you're thrown, a million and one different thoughts, isn't it good to have what the Lord has roared and uttered? Because in a moment's notice, brothers and sisters, doubts, difficulty, isms will look attractive. One of the things we have to understand is that what he says is good for us. And aren't we thankful that we have it? The odor that I get, and my parents used to say this, and here I am, the odor I get, the less I know. And the more dependent I grow, and I, I start to realize how much I desperately need. Lord, I need you? Yeah. Why do we sing that every week? To remind ourselves. Two more things. One thing, another thing we must understand to hear this or, or a natural implication of this. The Lord has spoken, we must l listen. Because of this, we are accountable. Sorry. Well, maybe I'm not sorry. No. <laughs> we are accountable. Amos is not a mean, evil guy just kicking on people. It's a gracious father holding his people accountable. Why? Because it's good for them. God's word is so good for you and I. He loves us so much that he'll do the hard thing. He'll say, be quiet. No. Go to your room. I don't know. He loves us so much that he'll get into those weeds with us. He has spoken, we must listen. This means we are accountable. If we don't listen, we're doomed in every way possible. Mark it up every way possible. And we all understand this morning, our ultimate and greatest consequence will be spiritual. We do know that. But do you also know that God understands the world a little bit better than you? So even just doing what he said is really, really good for the here and now? Maybe it's loss of friends and notoriety and popularity. But we know at the end of the day, it is what is even healthy for us. What should be normative for the people of God is also what is most healthy for them. Neglect it, and it will lead to a world of misery. A world of misery. Neglect what the Lord has said. There's not just future difficulty, which there are big ones. But there's one of misery now. Part of what we've been doing for the last six years is become faithful to what the Lord has said. It's that simple. And in doing that, we are more joyous than we have ever been. Are we, do we have less difficult situations? Oh, no. If anything, we might have more difficult circumstances. But he has spoken, and we are choosing to listen. Lastly, let me make this point. Just as the Lord sent Amos, a shepherd, to Israel with a word, hmm, he has sent his son, our shepherd, to us as a trust 
worthy word to listen to. Remember the beginning of John's gospel and the word became flesh. What's the greatest way that the Lord roars and utters is in the person and work of his son, Jesus. Oh, he utters glorious truths, but he also roars difficulty, consequences, wrath. You see, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, We've seen his glory, glory as the only son from father, full of grace and truth. And do you know what, what that son who brought this word, you know he had the audacity to say? John 10 says, this is Jesus speaking, the word that became flesh. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Oh, we'll see that. <laughs> Amos. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and here's the kicker. I lay down my life for the sheep. Praise the Lord. Consequences are doubt out, and they will endure. But this leads us to a person who endured it all on our behalf. His name is Jesus who is called the good shepherd. He has come and declared that wrath is coming. Oh, but wait, he will take it upon himself. If you're visiting with us this morning, the Lord has roared. You must hear that. His provision in his word is another glorious shepherd named Jesus, who took upon himself all that you cannot bear. Grab someone before you go. Myself, Pastor Jared, who is up here. Grab one of us. Grab someone in our congregation. We'd love to continue to talk about that. Brothers and sisters, what an incredible book that's going to challenge us deeply. But this morning, can you hear it clearly? The Lord has spoken. We must listen. Let's pray. Father God, you are a glorious, wonderful, truthful God. This morning we can lay ourselves bare in all of our difficulty, but we can trust you. So Father, we ask that you would deal with our hearts where we lack trust, where we are leaning on our own understanding more than you. You would pierce our hearts, stretch our thinking, and help us to become convinced that what you say is actually good for us. If there's some here this morning that don't know you, we pray that your word has been clear. That the roar of your word and your scriptures has pierced their hearts. And they would respond by listening and faith and, and, and repentance to you. So, Father, we ask you to continue to guide us as we look at this book. Be with us this week as we wrestle with obedience to your word. So, Father, it's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.